are you any closer to what you wanted to be? And people say, nope, I blew it again. <laughs> and we say, do you want to keep going? David Yoakum here. Can money make you happy? How should you spend that $20 in your pocket right now? Is Mo money really Mo problems? We're joined today by Mike Norton, a professor of Harvard Business School and co-author of Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending, which, as the name implies, is all about understanding the surprising and, I might say, often troubled relationship we have with money and how it impacts our well-being. It's a fun conversation. Mike's a funny guy. But if you're like me, it'll also leave you humbled about how you might do better at spending your money and what you really care about in life. I'll tell you one thing you can't afford not to listen to this podcast. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Well, Mike Norton, welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Thanks for having me. How are you feeling today? Are you happy? I feel, I feel like I'm a 59 out of 67. In utils we're talking about? I think in utils, yes. In utils, yeah. What's the last thing you bought? The last thing I bought on the train was a Diet Mountain Dew. That's good. That's mm-hmm. good. Well, so you do a lot of research on happiness, a lot of other things as well. And so I want to get into what makes people happy, how it's related to money. It's mm-hmm. probably useful to lay a little bit of foundation. What do we even mean by the concept happiness? Super tricky. So, uh, in fact, there's probably... 131,000 academic papers on what is happiness, what's the different kinds, what's the different, all these sorts of things. I think of it as two main things. One is sort of how are you doing in your life overall, kind of a, a sense of your life to get to all taken together. And then the other kind of happiness is the moment to moment. Like, are you smiling? Are you laughing? Are you enjoying yourself today? And they're usually correlated with each other, but different things can move one or the other one of those. So I did the out of 67 thing. What, what's weird is if, if I say to anybody, on a, I just made up scale, but on a scale from 1 to 67, how are you feeling today? People will say something like 61, which seems weird because to understand how happy you are, you should have like an Excel spreadsheet or something, you know, and really like figure it out. But you say 61, and then if I ask you in a year, you're probably still around 61, except if something bad happened and then you're like 55, and if something good happened, you're like 65. So I don't actually know what... 51, 55, 65 mean, but I know if you move from where you are, something good happened or something bad happened. And that's basically what we do. So we say, let's try having people do different things, broadly defined, and then we'll look after to see what it did to their 61. Did it go up or did it go down? And if it went down, we say, don't, don't do that. <laughs> if it goes up, we say, maybe do more of that. So it's usually operationalized on some sort of scale like what do you ask people for a lot of the studies we're going to talk about today what do you how are you operationalizing this some of them are like uh think back to your day how often did you laugh how often did you smile uh some of them are one to ten one is unhappy ten is happy where are you on the scale sometimes we do things like measure people's facial expressions so it, it turns out some emotions are quite hard to see if people are experiencing them or not like um, what's a complex emotion? Schadenfreude. I'm not sure there's like a facial expression for that necessarily, but happiness is super easy. It's like you see the teeth, people are smiling and they're laughing. So we can also record people doing different things again and then say, those people were smiling and those people weren't. Maybe let's have them do more of the smiley things. And then we find that if we also ask you one to 10, that tends to line up pretty well with how much you were actually smiling and laughing during whatever we asked you to do. So if you're actually taking measurement like taking the matchings of how many times they said they smiled your rating right now they tend to be correlated exactly together. yeah and what about i mean you at the onset said there's the type of happiness which you're sort of thinking about your life versus how you're feeling at the moment often correlated but not always yeah how do these start to get pulled apart so there are many many things in life only some of which are discussable on a on a podcast that make us extremely happy in the moment and are not necessarily good for, for our long-term well-being. Some of them are illegal. Uh, but even something like, you know, at any given moment, it's awesome to eat chocolate cake, right? Like, assuming you like chocolate cake, but whatever your favorite dessert is, totally awesome. Right now, if I'm eating chocolate cake and you say, how are you feeling? I, awesome. I mean, I'm a 10 out of whatever and I'm smiling and everything. 
But if I eat chocolate cake every minute of every day, my overall well-being will eventually suffer because I'll gain a lot of weight and I'll have health problems. And then that's going to affect my overall sense of my life. So there are things that feel good now that if you do, and it's fine to do a little chocolate cake, but if you do too much of things, then they can start to aggregate up not to increased happiness, but actually to less happiness. And there's that's kind of the diminishing marginal returns of things. I imagine there's also a difference between, like if I ask you how happy you are right now, which you kind of did at the beginning, like your smile factor, whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. that's a little bit different than asking how satisfied are you in life. And I can imagine getting different answers depending on which way you ask that. Definitely. Even if you think, if you take a second and if I said, how happy are you right now, what pops into your head? And how satisfied are you with your life? What pops into your head? There's some overlap, but they're actually really different questions, right? One is you're thinking about just kind of like, how's my day been so far? And the other one is sort of, am I self-actualizing with meaning in my overall life? And do I have close social connections? And, you know, am I a good parent and things like that? So it's actually interesting that they tend to correlate a little bit with each other because they're actually really different questions. But in some sense, if you're doing things most of the time during each day that are making you happy, often that means that your overall life is pretty happy as well. And something like, we both have young kids. Many of my moment-to-moment experiences, changing diapers, screaming, throwing things, is not exactly, happy is not exactly the word I would use. But at the end of the day, or if you ask me how satisfied I am, off the charts. Yes, bizarrely. Not necessarily reflecting back on the day. If I asked you to look at a, a tape of yourself for the day, you wouldn't say, <laughs> oh, I was secretly happy, right? You wouldn't say that, but you, somehow the summation can make you actually happier. We have this um, research on uh, what we called emo diversity, which is unfortunate choice of words, but too late now, with Jordi Koidbach. Um, and the idea is that in addition to feeling, you know, happy and sad, we have a huge range of emotions that we can experience. Like schadenfreude, it's not common, but we can experience that as well. And the idea in this research was to assess not just kind of single emotions, but people's sort of emotional ecosystem. Like across your day and week, what are all the different emotions you're experiencing? And then how often do you experience them? And we have not done this study yet, but I have a very strong feeling that being a parent, the research shows it doesn't necessarily make you more or less happy overall, but my God, does it change your emotional ecosystem, the frequency of emotions, the kinds of emotions, new ones are being added all the time. So it isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just a completely different emotional life that you either get to experience or you are forced (laughs) to experience, but in any case, it's happening. And I guess as we're moving forward in this conversation, just kind of keeping track on whether by happiness we mean, and you tell me if this isn't the right way to kind of keep these separate, the emotional feeling I'm having right now in the moment versus a different flavor, which is my satisfaction and sort of sense of well-being as a person in life. Definitely. And parenting is, is such a great example that you raised because Again, moment to moment, it can be quite (laughs) challenging and trying, but almost no parents say, I don't want to do it anymore, right? It's very meaningful to them and it's very important to them that they're doing it. And when they look, when they're 80 and they look back, what do they say? I'm so glad I had kids. It was the most important thing I did, but it doesn't still mean that you love changing diapers right now. That's still not a super fun task. And so your recent book is about not only happiness, but in particular, the relationship between happiness and money. Let me, let me just give, let me give you the floor to set the stage for how we should even start to think about the role of money and happiness. So we, so, so Liz Dunn uh, had been studying happiness for, for quite some time. She's my co-author and uh, I was at a business school. And so uh, there was sort of this natural intersection between like happiness and then business is supposed to be about money. I don't know if you know that. But so anyway, we were, we were thinking about uh, what currencies can we spend that uh, might change our happiness. And there's not, there isn't just money, of course. So time, of course, how we spend our time is a huge influence on our happiness. Even things like how we allocate our 
emotional attention, you know, like who do we decide to care about? Well, we can't care about everyone, right? So we have like a limited emotion thing. And then we, we like, I'll give a lot of it to my kid and maybe like 1% to Jeff at work or, or whatever it might be. But money's a huge one, right? So, uh, so much of what we do is based on money. We're buying stuff, we're saving, we're worried about it, all these sorts of things. So we started with money, not because we think it's the most important resource. It's just really ubiquitous in our lives and it's relatively easy to change. So it's a little hard to change like your entire day because stuff's happening to you and you you know you have meetings that you can't cancel and you have kids whatever it might be but money actually you can always take a dollar unless you're really income constrained you can always take a dollar and do something different with it than you were planning to do and then we can look again to see well did doing it that way make you happier versus less happy and so walk me through pick an experiment that you've done in this space so uh, I remember actually Liz and I met at a um, conference to brainstorm ideas, and I said, I have a, an amazing idea for a research project. And Liz said, I have a good idea too. And I was like, I got to say mine first. And I have no idea what it was. It was stupid. And Liz's idea was, I think that, that spending money on other people makes you happier than spending it on yourself. And it's one of those just this, and I mean it as a compliment, the simplicity of it was just amazing, right? So it was such an obvious thing. No one had studied it ever. It was such an obvious thing to study. It's in, you know, religions and stuff like that, you know, you should give and things like that. But but there's lots of things that aren't true that we think are true. So that was really where it started. It was just, if I gave you $5, and I said, go spend it on yourself, or go spend it on somebody else. And we just ask you, what'd you do? And how are you feeling? would it actually make most people on average happier to give it away instead of keep it for themselves? And so you, you did this as a set of experiments. Who, give me, talk us through some of the details. Like who, who, who'd you have come in, you're giving them five bucks, what are the sort of instructions you're giving them, what are you asking them to do? Now we've done kind of the, the boring, let's control for everything, something like that, we can talk about those, but, but the first ones were really, um, let's just see what people do. So we, we, the very first study we ran was at University of British Columbia, and our research assistants went out on campus with boxes filled with envelopes, filled with money. <laughs> and they just stopped people at 9 a.m. and said, do you want to be in an experiment? And people said, okay. Asked them how happy they were, gave them an envelope with cash in it. And it just, very simple, the instructions said something like, by five o'clock today, spend this on yourself. By five o'clock today, spend this on somebody else. Then we just sent them away, called them that night, and said, how, how are you feeling now? And what'd you spend the money on? And so literally all we're doing is saying, here's how happy they were at 9 a.m. They went out and did something, and then let's see if they're any happier, whatever we call them, 9 p.m. or whatever it was. And the spending on yourself, even though it seems awesome, you know, if you gave me $5 to spend on myself in the moment, I'd be psyched, right? It's free $5, so what can I do with it? But at the end of the day, nothing. It wasn't bad. It just didn't do anything for you. But the people who spent on somebody else, end of the day, were happier than they had been that morning. How much happier? Uh, I don't remember exactly. So, so typically, when you have these 10 points, let's say a 10-point scale, most people don't use like below five. Uh, so you're, it's kind of a restricted range on the scale, which means like a one-point difference is enormous. Like divorce often causes a one point, one point decrease. <laughs> so that's how the scale sort of works. We tend to find though that these are um, not tiny effects. So um, it, it is in fact the case that when you spend on other people, you get a little bit happier on the scale. Doesn't change your life. I would imagine it doesn't last for more than you know a day. Or It's not like you spend on someone else once and you're happy for the rest of your life. But it does seem to reliably make people a little bit happier. And we got lucky, actually, because spending on yourself almost always does nothing and across many, many studies, which means all we have to do is beat nothing. So if you tell people, here's money, go spend it, everybody spends it on themselves. Like almost everybody says, this is going to be great, I'll spend it on myself. And we know that they will be zero happier, basically, which means any intervention we design, all we have to do is beat nothing. So it's super easy, actually. So imagine that spending on yourself made you pretty happy. Well, then to have an intervention that we could say is better, we'd have to make you even happier than that. That's a different ballgame. It's just compared to nothing. <laughs> is there anything we can tell you to do that will be better? And of course, 
step it back just a little bit. You know, $5 in an envelope is one thing. This larger question about the relationship between money and happiness for those who have been in tight moments, not having enough income, I think the the proposition that money isn't going to make you more happy is a tough sell. So take, let's, let's step back and think about the larger range of income. How, how, you know, I assume there's a baseline where if you don't have enough and you're starting to run low on basic amenities, it starts to make a, a, a very dramatic difference. Yeah, so there's these uh, several sort of now, now classic papers um, uh, uh, by I think multiple Nobel Prize winners now Angus Deaton and Danny Kahneman both won Nobel Prizes in economics, but what they showed was that uh, at, at very low levels of income, uh, increases in income are associated with more happiness. And and part of the idea there is if you're struggling to meet your basic needs, the stress and anxiety of that is really having a negative weight on your well-being. And when you have ten thousand more dollars of income. That can be life-changing, actually. Your worry and stress can go, you know, can I feed my children? Do I have a roof over my head? Taking those worries off, if you look down at, at those levels of income, very strong positive relationship between income and happiness. So there's sometimes this myth that, like, money doesn't matter for happiness. It's absolutely not true. So at the low end, for sure, more income can be a huge benefit for people's well-being. That's number one. The finding that got the most media attention still is this idea that around $75,000 uh, of household income, more money doesn't make you any happier. That kind of always goes around. Uh, and that's not what they showed, and that's not what they said, actually, either. So if you look, and the problem is it's a little bit complex, but it, it turns out that around that amount of income, you get diminishing marginal utility of extra money. And <laughs> what that means is, the same $10,000 that if you were making 20000 and then you made 30000 would make you very, very happy. That same 10000 if you're making 75000 and then you make another 10000 doesn't have as big an effect. And if you, if you take it all the way out, if you're making 100000 10000 more doesn't matter as much. If you're making a million, 10000 more, you can see, doesn't, wouldn't really matter very much at all. It wouldn't change your life. But it's not that it doesn't matter at all, right? So the, the slope of the curve is still that more money makes you happier. And we've recently published a couple of papers. We managed to get data from millionaires, which is hard to get because millionaires don't fill out surveys for $2 or whatever we pay. But we, through various sources, we got surveys of millionaires. Millionaires are definitely happier, like no doubt. So you get the same shape, this diminishing marginal utility, like $10,000 doesn't matter as much you know, at a certain point. But if you have like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extra $10,000, like millionaires do, eventually that adds up to more happiness. So it's a little bit of a bummer, actually, that millionaires really are happier than the rest of us. Um, the, the original findings are completely accurate. But I think the story is that money doesn't matter that much. And it turns out that it, it kind of still does, right? So, so for low income people, it definitely matters. And for higher income people, it's true that another 10 grand won't matter that much, but it doesn't mean that increasing your income pretty dramatically doesn't still make your life better overall. How do you think the slope of this curve has changed over time? So I'm thinking of, you know, Keynes in the 30s or whatever we're talking about as, as income goes up, like you'll hit a point where nobody's going to be worrying about basic necessities. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, his projections on how sort of material wealth was going to increase has been happening. And yet it seems that the satisfaction at the lowest kind of quartiles of the income distribution continue to be spinning a little bit. Yeah. What's uh, happening? W one thing that unfortunately um, has arisen over the last 50 years, it's, it's always existed, but on an individual level has just exploded is consumer debt. So there are these things that you may have heard of them called credit cards and they're awesome. I mean, they're really great. Like, we do all sorts of cool stuff with them, and we can totally buy anything we want right now. And the problem is that later on, not so great. <laughs> so when we think about someone having an annual income of whatever it is, that's how that person often says, you know, like, this is how much money I have. I make $30,000 a year. But we actually have to back out sort of the, well, what is your actual income? What is your purchasing power? And if you're paying off credit cards at, you know, 25% interest rates, you don't actually have $30,000 of income. So it might be the case if debt didn't exist that we would have seen sort of the, 
$30,000 is plenty to make you happy. But because debt exists and many low-income people have to go into debt just to meet their basic needs, then we start to see again that more money is going to matter a lot, not because it's increasing your income exactly, but because it's removing debt. And debt is the number one negative drag on well-being. I mean, divorces and losing your job is too, but debt is just a constant, constant drag on how happy you are with your life. And not to ask a naive question, but to try to put a little bit more of a technical thumb on it. Why is that? I mean, if you're, is it that people are just walking around constantly thinking about it? Is it something else? So we did this survey uh, a few years ago, actually asking people about their wealth. Uh, often wealth and income are conflated, but uh, and for many people, they are the same. Actually, if you don't have any savings, your income is sort of your wealth. But for lots of people, of course, their wealth is, is something else. So we asked people literally, um, how wealthy are you? open-ended and just ask them to fill it out however they wanted. And what people do is they, they put sort of their salary and they put their savings and then they list all the things they have and they sort of estimate a dollar value of them. Houses and, then, and stuff. Exactly. And they kind of add it up. And then they say, that's how wealthy I am. And then we say a very simple question, which is like, well, do you own any of those things? And they're like, no, no, I don't own any of them. In fact, I'm a massive debt on my, like my mortgage is underwater even. I'm, so I'm, I'm actually down on my house, not up on my house. So they, they, when we think about our wealth, we think about what we have, but there's always these under the surface, what we don't have, what we're, what we're in debt with. And yes, absolutely a kind of, you love your house and you feel like your house is your house. And underneath it every month, this bill comes that says you, you don't own you don't own your house, you still owe a ton of money, and maybe you can't even make the payment next month. So having a house is, is better than not having a house, but it doesn't mean that house people with houses are happy and people without are not happy. Going back to that 75K point where the curve is starting to smooth out, is that map into a point where people are starting to have more less debt? Like, like at some point, I guess you break free of the gravitational pull of the debt and you actually do own your house or you have enough savings and whatnot that you could conceivably buy it. Is that like a psychological threshold that's of particular importance? It seems to be. And I think um, that also that 75,000 is on average across all cities. Uh, Of course, with different cities with different costs of living, of course, the number is different. So it's not as though if you make that in San Francisco, it's the same as if you make it in Toledo, Ohio you're way better off in Toledo, Ohio with that amount of income. So it's sort of relative to the expenses where you live. There's a point at which you're just less worried about those those basic things and about your debt. That said, there are people with millions of dollars who are massively in debt, and debt weighs on them as well. So so even if you you look on paper, you know, <laughs> you have stuff and you have a huge income, if it's still being dragged down by, well, I don't really own that. You know, now you have seven houses that you have mortgages on instead of one. You still actually have a hit to your well-being. So, so income helps, but it doesn't buffer you from all of the worry of debt if you continue to incur more debt and use your credit cards and things like that. How do you think we should factor in those implications for some of the debates around, I'll say debt reform for for lack of a better umbrella return, but you know, co- access to college without having to take on as many loans, universal basic income. There's yeah. a variety of things that are meant to avoid the need to take on so much debt in our society. How should happiness be factoring into these debates? So you'll hear um, different arguments. Uh, I would say one is uh, who cares? It's like some number on a scale. Let's we don't, let's not worry about that. Let's worry about more important things. That's one. Another argument is, um, well, let's see what well-being um, predicts that's important. So if we did some intervention like universal basic income and it raised people's well-being by some amount, what would that mean in their lives? Would they be making it up but more likely to start a business? Would they be more likely to send their kids to school? So, so what would be the macroeconomic effect of that? And then well-being is just a proxy for other other things. And then the third camp is well-being is important in and of itself that when you're uh for example running an organization or running a country it should be your concern that people feel good about themselves and feel like they have a future and their children have a future whether or not they go out and open seven businesses and you know innovate for the 29th century or whatever. 
all of those camps seem reasonable uh, in a sense. And I think the the poli- when people talk about as well being important, you're often talking at cross purposes because you're seeing it as something different, like not useful at all, useful as a proxy, just super important. And and you can imagine which which sorts of people believe <laughs> which of those things, you know, on average, more or less. I tend to come down on uh, being in a business school and working with companies. I tend to come down on you. You have a little bit of a responsibility, at least at the company level, to care that your employees are doing okay in their lives. It's not legally required, but it's something that uh, is worth thinking about. And I would also at the government level as well. I think yes, it could be useful to think about how how um, well are people doing if you ask them. And if they all say that they're miserable, it probably means that there's bigger things going on and you should probably think about making some changes. And there are some countries and cities that are trying to introduce happiness indexes as a alternative way of thinking about sort of city or population success, I'll say, other than something like GDP. Yeah. And, you know, we hear, you know, I mean, when we think about is there a, a recession coming, we have these measures like consumer confidence, and which is a perfectly legitimate measure, but it's the same thing. It's like a, asking people some questions about how confident you are. And that one we've said, yeah, that's a good one. That one's okay. We can use that one <laughs> for stuff. But it still feels as though asking people just how you're doing, that feels not sort of numbery enough and so it feels sort of trivial and let's put it to the side and focus on the metrics that we're more comfortable with and what do I mean, there's a lot of cliches about and as you said biblical references and so on about money what do we actually know about typical intuitions about the relationship between money and happiness what do most people believe in the same survey that we asked um, millionaires how happy they were, we also asked them, uh, how much more money would you need to be a perfect 10 in happiness? We also asked regular people like us the same question. Uh, And it's what's so astonishing is that across so many levels of income and wealth, almost the, the, the modal answer, the most common answer is two to three times as much. It just, it just, when you ask people, they say, yeah, if I, if I only had double. So if you make 30,000, you're thinking, man, if I had 60,000, right? Those people might be right because we said at lower levels of income, it matters, but millionaires. So a millionaire who has, let's say a million dollars, that person will say, God, if I only had 3 million, I'd be, my life would be terrific. But of course we have people that have $3 million and those people say, man, if I only had $9 million, life would be terrific. Well, we have $9 million people and they say, man, if only I had 27, you know what I mean? So it just goes up and up and up. No one, very few people say, I'm good. So the intuition typically is more would be better. Not always double, not always triple, but almost no one, for example, says, I'd be happier with less. There's just not, those responses don't exist. It's always what I have or more. So the intuition is definitely very strongly more money will make me much, much happier. That's a bummer. Are there things one can do to educate your intuitions here? Maybe educate's not the right word. To your earlier point that with more money, in some sense, you yeah. do increase your happiness, but in some marginal marginal way. I guess the more precise question is if you're overestimating the rate of increase and it leads you to pursue money in problematic ways, for yeah. lack of a better way of phrasing yeah. it. Are, are, are there, like, what do we know from individual differences in these types of intuitions or yeah. beliefs are there other learnings about how to think more clearly about money for a person so one thing that um we've we've done uh as an informal intervention i would say so we haven't we haven't tested this but but here's what we ask people to do as a thought experiment uh if i ask you um every year from age 18 to now uh how happy were you with your life it's retrospective, there's biases, blah, blah, blah. But, but basically, how happy were you when you were 18, 19, 20, 21? And people have a, a pretty decent sense of, you know, 25 was that rough year when some, you know, and 22 was an awesome year, whatever it might be. And then we also ask them, um, hey, look back and, and what was your income those years? And people tell us their income those years. And then we literally can make a plot. I mean, like on, on paper and pen, it's not like fancy, fancy computer plot, <laughs> just paper and pencil. And you just see that they're totally not correlated. 
for the most part, they're completely uncorrelated with each other. And that shows you that, again, it's not bad to have money, of course, of course, but in your own life, you have not observed any relationship between how much money you had and how happy that, that year was for you. So just thinking about your past, the, the other one that's great is um, uh, people are like, I want a bigger house. I need a bigger house. We need more space. We need a bigger house. Same thing. Ask people from age 18 to now, how happy were you? And what was the rough square footage of where you lived? Totally uncorrelated. I mean, just think about it. It's completely uncorrelated. Many people say, I was the happiest when I had three roommates and we lived in this tiny place and it was so you know, you know, you had like one square foot <laughs> for yourself and you were a 10 and now you have a big house in the suburbs and you're a seven. You know, you've, you've gone through it in your life and so has everybody else. And yet we still kind of ignore the past and say, yeah, but the next 10,000 is going to be the sweet spot where now or the next extra bedroom, that's going to be when I'm really happy. So we do try to think uh, rather than give you stats, show you yourself and say, why do you think? your past would be any different than, than your future. Are people, I mean, hearing you say it, I'm not, it's kind of funny, right? Like, it's like, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And yet I still can't resist potentially feeling the same <laughs> way. Is it just the evolutionary gears are so tightly yeah. in place to be pushing you to yeah. want to acquire? Is that what's at play? And we have this un- very unfortunate thing. Well, it's amazing, but unfortunate, which is that we cannot help but compare ourselves to other people. And so when you're, however you define your peers, when they're still moving up the ladder, it's very, very hard for us to say, uh, well, no, I understand well-being better than they do. And so I'll, I'll stay where I am. It's just, it's hard just because of social comparison to opt out of these systems that we've all decided are the good systems to compare yourself, which is like square footage, how nice your car is, how much money you make. We don't compare on things like, um, um, how much quality time do you spend with your kids? We, we probably should, but there's not like a chart. You know, it's more, I mean? di- it's more difficult to <laughs> yeah. tell. I don't know how much quality sense. time you spend with your kids, but if I peek outside at your car, I could be like, aha, yeah. you know, my car is 1% better than his car. I don't know if I'm a better dad or not. So we have these soft things that we don't measure that are actually important, but the hard things get in the way and we start to use those. And then it's really hard to opt out and say, I like driving my really lousy car or my scooter or whatever it might be when, like, you know, your brother has an amazing car or something like that. I have a sweet van, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> Cup holders? Oh, yeah. Oh, Cup God. holders. It's like, like, so you beat me. I, I couldn't afford the, the cup holders. Uh, we just have liquid all over the all over the van. A nice van. If you've got kids <laughs> to get the own vents, the ability for the doors to slide back so you don't smash mm-hmm. them into the cars next door. It, it brings it brings happiness and it's you have to get the, that chauffeur partition too where you can just just bring up, bring up <laughs> yeah, flop, flop it up and cry like ah solve that problem real quick serenity now just yeah uh-huh. so what i want to come back to what i think is some of the, the most important parts of the book which are insights on how you spend your money so not all is equal on this front and You've given one example on spending for yourself versus others. Let's spend some time on this. Tell, tell me a little bit more about what you've been learning on how to spend your money better or worse in terms of its impact on happiness. So one of the things, so I'm always a huge fan of um, uh, showing people themselves in a way they haven't seen themselves. So the, what was your income? How happy were you? That sort of thing. The other thing we can do, very similar um, uh intervention, let's say, is uh, I could tell you right now, download your credit card statement from last month and go through it, not go through it, you know, should I have bought that or not? That's a, we should probably do that too, but that's another exercise. Go through it and categorize the things. And I can give you categories, but you can also just make them up. You'll start to be, well, that goes with that, that goes with that. And then what we can do, and we do this a lot, we can tally up the percent that you spent on different things. So even just with yourself versus others massively, massively, of course, we spend more money on ourselves than we spend on other people. And that's not like a mistake. We have to have food and, you know, pants and things like that. So I don't mean to criticize, but it's a very tiny percent for most people that they spend on other people, which can include charity or gifts for friends or or things like that. Parenting complicates things because all the expenses are unclear, you know, who they're for. 
But, but when we look at that and we show people that, most people say, oh, I don't like that. And I say, but that's you. You know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't give you new information. And they say, yeah, I didn't even realize I was giving 0.2% of my income to charity. I just thought, you know, when people ask me to give, I give. I'm not, I'm not a jerk. And I say, no, I know you're not a jerk, but you have to be more thoughtful about whether you're giving or not. So we literally will have people audit themselves last month and then tell us, hey, what would you like to do next month? Do you want to, and if you don't want to change anything, great, good for you. And if you do, then we'll audit you again the following month and say, are you any closer to what you wanted to be? And people say, nope, I blew it again. <laughs> and we say, do you want to keep going? So often we're not even saying science has shown that you should be spending, you know, 1.9% of your income on this or that. We just ask people, does this reflect your values? Does this reflect what's important to you? And often people say it. No, it actually, it really doesn't. And just seeing it can change the way you start thinking about, are you using your money in ways that maximize your well-being? What is it about spending on other people that seems to be driving the relative increase in happiness relative to spending on yourself? It seems like a, uh, a couple of things. So um, one thing for, for sure that we've, we've seen, and, and actually other researchers have, have done more on this uh, than we have, is that... So, so another, so humans like to compare themselves to other people. That's one thing we have. The other thing is that we like to feel like we're um, competent and getting stuff done. So that's why people, when they have a to-do list, will put on fake things on the list and just to cross them out. So at the end of the day, they say, yeah, I had a good day. You know, like the first item is cross something out on a list and they're like, yes, <laughs> you know, that was a good day. So we really have this need to feel like we did something each day and, and overall in our lives and spending on yourself research shows this, but even just thinking about it, it doesn't really give you that feeling like you accomplished something. Like when I bought a sandwich for myself, I didn't feel like nice. You know, I really got something done today. But when people spend on other people, they have much more the feeling that they did something, not even something nice. Just I did something today. When I gave a sandwich to a homeless person that did something like that was an impactful thing that I did with my money. And that sense alone actually partly predicts why spending on other people makes us happy because we made it, it's a little bit cheesy, but we made a difference in the world. And when you spend on yourself, unless you frame it as somehow by buying that car, you know, that, that saleswoman got an extra commission, you know, you'd have to go through some loops to say, I made an impact on the world. Giving other people is a really direct way to say, I did something, not even something good. I did something. And how do you tease apart the I did something versus ch the charity aspect on it? Yeah. So the other big component is this um, f feeling of um, social connection. So when you give a gift to uh, a friend uh, or if I buy you a coffee or something like that, you're going to smile and say you're great and, you know, and I'll feel really good about it. And so that's a, sort of a real social connection. But even when we spend on people like with charity or people who are far from us, we still have a feeling of social connection, you know, that, that there's a person that I'm connected to now. And that's another huge part of why giving makes us happy. And we know that because uh, when you give anonymously, so the recipient won't know, no one will know, you're not going to tell anyone, you're still happier than spending on yourself, but not nearly as happy as if you get credit and <laughs> your name's on a building and things like that. So there's these these two components. One is kind of um, connecting to other people and one is feeling like you did something either of those independently is good so if you don't need money to connect with other people and you don't need money to feel like you did something that day but when you use money to accomplish both of those things one of the ways to do it is spending on other people those independently kind of add up to feeling happier about it then again if you bought the same stupid sandwich for yourself and ate it all by yourself why would that if you just think why would that change your happiness there's just no way that's going to make your day amazing. Even if the sandwich is amazing, it's just not going to do much for your overall day. And maybe another way of pressing to make sure I'm hearing this right on the something unique about the doing part above and beyond the impact on another person part, independent again of still of whether you're getting the credit or seeing yep. it directly, it would be, for example, would your prediction be, or maybe you've even done it, if there's a donation that is just automatically drawn out of my account every month versus every month I punch in the debit card or write the check. 
it's the latter that you would predict is going to be having the punch. Both are better than same amount of money on something for yourself, but absolutely the the making the decision makes you feel more like because because in both of those cases you still help somebody else, so you get the connection feeling. But in the I decide every month, I get even more of the I did something today that was really important. Whereas if you just tell me it happened, I get a little bit of I did something, but it doesn't feel the same way as like checking a box and then I I really did something good today. So why why don't we learn this better? Or in another way, even coming to this that resonates a little bit on the point of just how important social comparisons are here. Like I mean, not to sound Machiavelli about it, but one really great way for social comparisons to sort of get triggered is, you know, going around and I'm the guy who's passing out gifts and treats all day. Yeah. Like it seems like it seems like there should be a lot of pressures to do this. Yeah. I think um so so there are things so the, like the billionaires pledge. So the super rich guys say we're going to give away half of whatever we have. Then that that actually creates like an arms race for generosity among super wealthy people. Only among that most of us can't pledge to give half of our wealth when we don't have any and number two we probably want to give it to our kids or whatever so there are cases in which and it's not clear if we like it or not where we're competing to be nice instead of just being nice but definitely those things can happen where you're competing on it but the other thing is that very often um, pro-social actions are invisible so again I don't know how much you give to charity and I don't know if you buy everyone lunch every day I don't know anything about it I do see what you're wearing and I do see your car and I do see the stuff you bought for yourself. So there isn't even any, even if we wanted to compete on it, there's not a lot of signal to compete on it because it's just, it's just hidden from me. If everyone sort of had like a badge that said how much they gave to charity, I bet we'd start competing on how much we gave to charity. It's just, there's no badges like that. So maybe nobody gives anything. I have no idea. If you get an email from some charity I don't know what percent of people give money to that. I never hear what percent, so maybe I don't need to give. It's going to be a Facebook widget in like 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> you are 99th percentile of your friends. You're the worst giver in the world. Yeah. I think this is some of the social score metrics in China. Have you seen this? Yeah. Yes. Which is some of those components. Yeah. I don't know where that takes the conversation now but we'll just put that in the back burner the folks who got the five dollars of cash or other experiments they're spending on themselves is there a parameter here of how to spend better or worse on yourself yes so um a couple of ways so one is um tom gilovich at cornell and his colleagues have done lots of really fascinating research on buying experiences so Actually, if you think about buying stuff for yourself, one opposite thing you could do is um, uh, switch from yourself to other, which is what we've studied. And the other kind of opposite of buying stuff for yourself is you can keep it with yourself, but what's the opposite of stuff? Experiences. So in a way, it's just saying, like, what, what's the opposite of what we usually do? And let's test to see if those are better. And Tom and his colleagues have shown again, not for everyone all of the time, just like giving to other people, but for most people, most of the time, buying experiences leads to more happiness than buying stuff. Again, because buying stuff doesn't do much for you. And experiences, I should say, not just, you know, a six month vacation, that would be awesome too. But he means by experiences, an evening out, you know, so small, small purchases as well. And we tried to do that in our research as well, mirroring his research. You don't have to change $100,000 of your spending. It's like $5 today you could use in a different way. And at least for that day, experiences or giving would make you happier. So take the $5 and use it as a ticket into a, well, I guess there's not $5 concerts around anymore, but you know, yeah. something like that. It would be a very bad concert. <laughs> there might be a, a cap on the, uh, it's like your friend's brother's band for $4. And also buying out of negative experiences. So the one that I think of that I actually did after reading this research was spending money on just help with chores and things like that, Definitely. which was something to push through because it felt kind of wasteful because like I can do it, but I didn't like it. Um, but in, for a while when I was uh, 
like paying for someone to do your laundry or something like yeah. that. It kind of like feels wasteful, but if you hate if if you hate doing those things. Yep. So so my colleague um, at HBS Ashley Willens, who studies time and happiness in general, but her her dissertation was actually exactly that. So um, it's about buying yourself time in a sense. So I mentioned earlier time is such, like time and money are the two big resources we have. So you, typically when we spend money, we're not thinking about how it's going to affect our time. Like when you buy a big house that's awesome, you're not thinking about the fact that you're buying a commute. I mean, you know it, but you're not thinking that 30 minutes every morning and every evening, you're going to be commuting in traffic and hate yourself and hate the world every single day. You're just thinking I'm getting an awesome house. And so Ashley really looks, looks to, helps people to think more carefully about you can buy that thing, but what will it do to your time? And that alone is a very important thing to think about. And then the other thing that she's shown is exactly what you said, which is that when you use money to buy yourself out of things you really, really hate or are hard or are stressful, huge benefit for your time. And, and as you said, it's not like we can all afford to have a butler you know, who cleans our house every day. But, but single shot thing. I mean, if, you have, if, if the thing you hate most is cleaning your bathrooms, let's say, you can hire someone to do that once a month so you don't have to do it at least that one time. And it, that's good, period. And also, if you use that time for something great, like spending time with the people you love or spending time on a hobby that you really like, it's an incredible use of money instead of, again, buying yourself another stupid thing. So the, the, the comparison that people often make is I can't afford to pay someone once a month to, you know, come and clean. And I don't mean to be cavalier. Of course, many people are income constrained. But what we find is even people who say, I can't, I can't, I don't have enough money. We have them look back at their credit card statement from last month. And we say, can you find $40 last month that you won't spend on whatever stuff you bought and you can allocate to having someone come once to clean your house? Again, people who are income constrained, absolutely not. More people than think, than you know, they're aware of can actually say, yeah, maybe I don't need like seven Starbucks coffees every single day. Maybe I'll cut it back to six and then I might have enough money to do this. So the account that you're drawing from isn't um, keeping everything the same and then adding this. It's actually thinking back again to how you're spending your money overall and reallocating it to the extent you can to things that might make you happier than the things that we know aren't really doing much for you. It seems like even in that domain of buying things, there's an implication related to thinking more deeply about the experience you're going to have with that physical object. Yeah. And in contrast to just buying a bunch of cheap stuff maybe you do better to buy much much fewer things but of higher quality and design and fit and value to you i think uh there's some a very cool research on uh uh cars basically so the the how nice your car is nothing to do with your happiness yeah uh, overall there's lots of reasons for that one is commuting stinks and things like that but the other big one is that when you buy a car uh, especially like a fancy car, like uh, whatever, a Lamborghini or whatever people buy these days. Uh, you're thinking when you buy minivans. it of the, like, exactly, yeah, tricked out minivans. <laughs> you're thinking of the Lamborghini like on, in the, like in car commercials, like on the open road, you know, just like wind, I'm bald, but wind flowing through your hair, you know, going whatever, 100 miles an hour, whatever it might be. And that's not what driving is, right? So, so it may be the case that a really nice car would make you happy, if you could always drive it on open roads and scenic mountains, but that's not what you're going to use it for. You use it to drive to work. So it doesn't matter that much if you're in a Porsche or whatever, I don't want to insult any car companies, but a Porsche or some other car company when you're stuck in traffic and honking at people. I mean, it's still better to be in a nicer car, but why would it change your life if what you're doing is swearing at all the people around you? And so we, we sort of like think that the nice car will be great because we imagine using it in an experiential way and we forget that we're probably not going to use it that way. The other awesome one is TVs. So um, not a huge fan of gender differences in general. They're totally overstated and things like that. But the data do show us that males much more than females would like a very large TV. It, it seems to be something that males would like much more than females would like. And when you ask these males, why are you buying this huge TV? 
they will say, and they might be lying, but I think some of them really believe it. It'll be great because, you know, the family can can watch TV together and we'll have parties, Super Bowl, people will be over. So they're thinking of it. And, and again, they might be lying, but I think some really believe in their mind that it will be like family movie night and whatever. And then if you look at the data, when you buy a TV, it's it, you basically commit yourself to staring at a box on a wall for thousands of hours by yourself. Like, I mean, that's that's basically what went to you, even if you're married and whatever, because they're going to watch their own thing on their own laptop or whatever it might be. So there's no way that the TV is going to make you happy, right? Maybe if always when you watch TV, it was with your loved ones and it was a meaningful program. Maybe a TV would be a good investment, but if you're just watching like stupid sports highlights like I do for five hours a day by yourself, why would you ever? Th- There's no way you would say, oh, yeah, that's going to be great. I'm going to be way happier. Thanks, 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 TV, for helping me. I mean, there's all these things now about like decluttering your home and does it spark joy? I mean, these are very related, right? Which is why do you have these things around if they do nothing for you? That's kind of the idea of those. Another thing to do is rather than throw them out, is, is not to get them, right? So throwing them out if they don't spark joy is, is better than nothing. But why did you have 5,000 of the things that you need to throw out that don't do anything for you? That, again, shows why buying stuff doesn't do anything for your happiness. It's just sitting around. It doesn't help you at all. So, yeah, I do think there's something to saying, uh, you know, what's coming in? Are any of these things useful at all? And if they're not, either don't buy them or get rid of them pretty quickly but don't keep buying them and leaving stuff around. And I mean, the, the growth in the um, storage unit industry in the United States, it's like one of the success stories of the last half century or so. I mean, it's insane, the growth of self-storage. When you drive on a highway anywhere, it's like these enormous, you know, Disneyland-sized buildings for self-storage. What's in those? Nobody goes to them. I mean, you put the stuff there like, I'm going to need that. I'm going to need that stinky mattress <laughs> for something in chandelier. 20 years. Exactly. <laughs> and we can't get rid of it. It's like, I need it. I have to have that. You know, it's my stuff. You're never going to go look at it again. I mean, the number of those, those units where the, the, literally the people own them pass away and they have to get rid of, there's like TV shows about the ones that are abandoned because it's so useless. And yet we still have this theory like, no, my stuff is great. It's going to make me happy. I'm going to use it. How, so you, you're, You've got some some new frontiers of work on ritual, which actually I'm super interested in also. Tell me, what what are you interested in ritual about? What are you doing? Uh, So ritual is, uh, again, one of these topics where it's not as though people say, what's a ritual? You know, it's not like mind-blowing that it's something that humans do. We do it all the time. We've been really interested in... Uh, studying rituals, not like the large communal, often religious rituals that comes to mind when you think of the word ritual, but um, ones that individuals do in their in their everyday lives, often that they're not even aware that they do. So random example, but but um, let me ask you. So in, in the morning when you're getting ready, do you brush your teeth and then shower or do you shower and then brush your teeth? Brush teeth first. Brush teeth first, then I don't shower. want to deal with my teeth while I'm showering. You don't want to deal with your teeth. And you wake up. You want to brush your teeth right away. Okay. And then if I ask you to simulate in your mind doing it the other way, shower and then brush, how do you feel? I would brush my teeth in the shower. You would brush your teeth in the shower. You wouldn't be able to wait to brush your teeth after the shower. <laughs> I mean, if you really asked me nicely, I would do it. But, but why would it take like me like asking you? What What's the barrier there? I... <laughs> <laughs> I won't like stinky breath of the morning. Stinky breath, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so it, what's been totally bizarre to me is so <laughs> asking this question to many, many types of people in many countries. It's almost always like fifty-fifty. So half of people say I brush my teeth and then I shower, and half say I shower and then I brush my teeth. Some people say I do it simultaneously, but you have like literally half the world does it one way, half does it the other way, and they have these very strong theories, like <laughs> yeah. your mouth is gross, whatever it might yeah. be. And then if I asked, as I asked you, if, is it okay if you switch it? About half of people say, sure, actually. I don't, I don't care. I'm brushing whatever order. And about half of people say, like you do, like, ah. I mean, yeah, but mm, something in you is, mm, I, don't, I don't like it that way. To me, so if, I, if you do it some way and I say, can you switch and you say, fine. That's like in the morning you do stuff. It's like a habit almost. But as soon as you start to get out to the, I don't want to 
I don't want to change it. And also, by the way, people who do it the other way are gross. Like, what kind of a person doesn't brush their teeth and sits in the shower with a gross mouth? You know, and the other people are like, what kind of a person? So you have these like... That doesn't like wash themselves when they wake up. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's disgusting, literally. <laughs> and if you think about like, now take that up to a macro level, that's like rituals in the world, right? It's, I do it this way. It's the right way because I do it that way. I won't change. And if anyone else does it differently, I don't like them. There's something wrong with them. But I, I, the reason I use that example is because we're typically not talking about the big, you know, like this religion does it incorrectly. We're talking about these little ones that people do. And when you do your ritual the right way in the morning, you're kind of like ready. You're not thinking of it as that. So most people don't say I have to do it in this order. They're not even aware of it. But if you do it the wrong way, you leave the house like, ah, I don't, mm. you know, it wasn't quite right this morning. And if you do it your way, which is the right way to you, there's something good about it. Like it, it helps you a little bit, get your day started. And I was got really interested in those. What are the little things that we do often totally unaware that kind of help us through our day. And we've done it in lots of domains, but that was sort of the initial interest was these hidden little ones that we're all doing that I could try to like see in you and then point out to you and we could study it and see if it's interesting. What are the types of rituals people have? Oh, it's, I mean, it's insane. It's, it's, uh, I mean, depending on how you define it, it's like everything. Uh, so for example, in, in research we've done in the domain of grief, uh, when someone that you love passes away, of course you feel many negative emotions, of course, but one that you feel is a loss of control. And the reason for that is because hopefully, and almost always you didn't want them to die, but it happened. So you're left in a state of, I, I can't control anything. You know I mean? It's a very powerful loss of control. And that contributes to your level of grief. So do other things, of course, but that's one pathway. Rituals, which we've shown in some research, actually help to restore a little bit of that sense of control. And because of that, help you to feel a little bit less grief. Rituals aren't like this, the secret key to getting over grief. You need social support. You need, you, know, you need all sorts of things to help with grief. But just that idea that when you're knocked off your sense of control, rituals can, and you can sort of feel why, right? Because they're controlled behaviors that are predictable. They're not uncertain. They're predictable. They seem to help us sort of get back a little bit of a sense of, I can do this. Like, the, you know, I can get out of bed today because the world's a little bit in my control. And that sense of control is really, really good for well-being. So part of why I was excited seeing your, your ritual stuff is that I'm very interested in using ritual deliberately. I mean, it does seem like there are a lot of rituals that, you know, church attendance is going down. There's like a number of things that have been becoming less frequent. Yep. And if they do have these benefits of kind of stabilizing yourself or giving you even moments of reflection, is actually, I think actually one of the other flavors I think about here, yep. there could be real opportunities for introducing or designing rituals. What's this frontier like? This is, uh, you've just described uh, American life in the 21st century. So uh, the decline in not just um, religiosity, but church attendance, religious service attendance, I should say. It's like, well, it's not across all religions, but most. I said church because it's down the most, basically, but others are down as well. Uh, the lo the um, loss of faith in authority figures. So uh, like in time immemorial, rituals where an authority figure said, do it this way, and everyone did it that way, and now we could kind of like, we're all together in this, let's go about whatever we need to do in life. Now we have breakdown of the group part and breakdown of the authority part. So we're, we're le I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but, but we're left with nothing, but we still want like connection with other people, and we still want to feel in control of our lives. And if you think about the things that get popular over the last 20 years, yoga, uh, meditation. These are things that they go beyond like, uh, yeah, you just sit in your house and meditate. They become a thing that, that you do and you do it in groups as well. So it's a source of connection. There's this amazing, uh, article that I read recently about a group of, um, so think about atheists and agnostics. I'm not evaluating whether you should or should not believe in anything, but, but one thing that atheism, um, opts you out of is a ready set community. So if you're a member of a faith, then you can go literally go to the building that says that on it. And then there you go in and everyone says, hey, how's it going? Atheists don't have a building that, where you can do that. So they've lost something in a sense. And I just read this article about um, atheists who are um, creating groups. And what they do is they get together. 
and um, you know someone will kind of speak and they'll all you know do stuff together and sometimes there's music uh, and w- the funny thing about this was one of the groups got large and they had to hold their meeting in a church and so <laughs> there's like a person at the front they're all sitting in the pews they're singing you know I mean yeah. they're whatever and they're they're getting all the all of those good things about what religion can help us with in life and they've just removed they feel like they've rejected religion and, and they have like the belief in God but they have not rejected the the practice of religion which is really makes you feel like you have a sense of where you are in the world and also connects you with other people. So I do think that the cultural moment, I don't mean to exaggerate, but the cultural moment, when those things break down, I think people do look around for other ways to fill those things in in their lives. And do you think the social element is a key ingredient in what we even mean or how we should operationalize ritual? It, it is for many types of rituals. Like what was so interesting, for example, in the research on grief, We asked people, um, you know, uh, someone who passed away recently, and we said, what did you do afterward? What happened, literally? Not what rituals did you do, just what happened? And people would say there was a funeral and family came and things like that. And then a huge number of people then said something like a transition almost to say, but what I did was, and then they would tell us something that was deeply personal Uh, very idiosyncratic, so not based on handing down what a funeral should be from whatever. Um, And often they had never even told anybody about it. So there was a sense that that the group kind of ritual was there and it helped them. But people also privately often said, one woman that was was an older woman and her husband passed away, she wrote, uh, I washed his car every week as he used to. So her husband had had an antique car that he washed every week rationally she should probably sell it she's not gonna you know i mean if we do like whatever yeah. uh, mindset she should get rid of it and yet you you hear her saying that and you say what a beautiful thing that she's doing to honor this person that she lost and she probably didn't tell anybody about it because they might say it's pretty crazy to wash a car every week that nobody drives you know i mean again the jerk hat putting it on for a second would we evaluate her negatively of course not she's performing this individual private ritual that has huge meaning for her and staying connected to somebody that she lost. And that element of sociality seems to distinguish it from, and frankly, even like the toothbrush example, you could think more of just a, a habit. Yeah. Not to like quibble on the words, but there are just some routines you use because it's more efficient than having to like think about it. Same with like the clickers on teaching. Like if you're teaching, if it's a new clicker and pad, there's a little bit because it's like, you gotta think about it just a little bit. It's not yeah. complicated, but it's like friction. And so it's almost the habits help remove friction, whereas the rituals seem to have some pro-sociality to it. Fair? I think, so I, we, what we wanted to have was a checklist of like, th- these seven things are, are make a ritual and these, and these yeah. seven don't. Almost like um, without any of these seven, it's not a ritual and something like that. And it actually is, and your, and your comment shows this, it's, it's a bizarre continuum where different elements make something more ritualistic. So there are certainly rituals that have no social component, but rituals with a social component tend to be further out on the ritual continuum. So so for example, doing research with clinical psychologists who study obsessive compulsive disorder, this is in a sense, I don't mean to trivialize the, the disorder, but just in terms of what we're talking about, it's when rituals have gone too far and you're, you, you're now not doing the ritual to accomplish something else you're doing the ritual and it's become the primary reward itself, which means it's interfering with your life. If you think of those rituals, they're often not, not social at all, but they're, they're deeply everything else that rituals are. They're repetitive, they give you meaning, they feel right, all, all those sorts of things. So, so social is an important component, but, and we thought it would be an essential component, but it seems like there's sort of a constellation of ritually things, and the more of them you have, the further out it is. But it doesn't seem like any one is necessary, and without it, it can't be a ritual. I could be totally wrong because we're still doing research, but so far, that's what we've been finding. So tying together a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Life. Life, <laughs> happiness, <laughs> meaning, pure one chandeliers. Yeah. What The big I, things. For, for folks that are they've heard this, they're motivated right now, they want to start making some changes in their life tonight, tomorrow, or in the morning. I don't know when you're listening to this. Mm-hmm. 
What are some of the immediate, maybe some of the things you did yourself or some of the things you think that are kind of lower hanging fruit to start to, to spin better, to introduce rituals? What are some tips? One thing that I would, uh, I would do, and we talked about this briefly, but, um, I, I think, so we talked about like auditing your finances and auditing this and that, um, whatever you can, you can do that and, it, and it, it's probably pretty helpful, but even more than, than that, I think is, um, um, deciding what, what values are important to you and actually articulating them. So don't you like, well, of course we're like, oh, I know it's important to me. Not so much. So articulate them and then actually uh, try to align your life with them and in a weird way um, co- come up with metrics a little bit so if you ask people like do you want to be a good if I ask you do you want to be a good dad you know, I mean, you know of course like, no I want to be a bad dad of course you want to be a good dad uh, and that's very strongly held value right it's v- extremely important to you probably that you are a good dad uh, to, to your children um, and th- but then if I said well what exactly are you doing uh, how much time do you want to spend on being a good dad as opposed to other things? What are the activities that you think, you know, so I mean, I don't, I don't mean to like cheapen the love or something like that, but if your real value is, you know, I want to be a great partner and a good dad and a great boss, whatever it might be. Well, what are you actually doing to live out any of those goals? And I, I the reason I brought it up is I have found that it's a disaster. You know, I mean, if I say these are the six most important things to me, and then I look at my time allocation, disaster. I mean, just, just, it's so wrong. I'm so backward. So, and I don't mean like I can change my life and do whatever I want. I still have to go to meetings and stuff, but just moving in the direction of maybe I should do a little bit more of that and a little bit less of that. That's kind of easy to do. Like 30 minutes often you can swing <laughs> one way or the other to focus on something that's really important to you away from something that's your 39th most important value. Mike Norton, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Joachim and produced by Jessica Davison, Molly Cook, and Mitchell Johnson. Find more conversations on 30,000leagues.com and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep calm and narwhal on. Actually, one of the fun things about people getting, well, not necessarily getting married, but when you date someone for a while and then you go to their house for a holiday, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, who eats turkey at one o'clock? Turkey's eaten at three. I mean, it's just this great, like, and you're like, where's the cranberry jelly that's the kind? You know, like they yeah. make it from scratch. Like, what's wrong with these? That's one with me. It's and Sarah so bizarre. Too. You know, you're yeah. like, you're wrong. And it's like, who said your Thanksgiving is the good one?